0: This is the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Hey, brothers and sisters. I have an assignment for you. We're looking for three Nephite stories. If you've had any encounters with the Holy Trio, then we want to hear about it. It doesn't even have to be your encounter. Maybe it was your great Aunt Petunia's. Maybe it was something that happened to your roommate's sister's cousin's boyfriend. It doesn't matter, just so long as it's a story about the three Nephites. You can call it in to us. Our number is 801-906-6722 and leave a voice message of your story. Or you can record your own audio and send it to us at mail at mormonexpression.com. Thanks for the stories.
1: Welcome to another edition of Mormon Expression Podcast. I'm your temporary guest host, Tom, and today's episode is going to be really, really, really fun and interesting. We're going to be doing a little bit of turning the tables of sorts. We're going to uh, interview John Larson, the visionary, the man behind the mic, the guy, the creator, the director, John Larson, the starter up of Mormon Expression. How are you doing, John? (laughs) Great. I'm good good um so i guess we just wanted to uh do a little bit of a background check on you <laughs> see if you're not registered everywhere you move
0: yeah this is strange i don't have any notes in front of me i don't know what to say
1: i <laughs> guess you'll just have to go with uh with your own experiences i guess i'll follow so- the
0: spirit yeah
1: <laughs> yeah follow the spirit so wh- why don't you uh because i personally i i've never well i guess i've met you in real life once real briefly but right um and i and i've only talked to you uh through these podcasts so why don't you lead me up a little bit through your childhood were you born and raised in the church
0: yeah i was born um into an lds family both uh, my uh, father's side and my mother's side go uh, mormon all the way back my father comes from the scandinavian Immigrants who came after the Mormons came out and settled Utah. And my mother's family traces back to uh, Kirtland, about 1834. Uh, Vincent Knight, who was the Bishop of Nauvoo, joined the church. And so I come from solid Mormon stock. I'm a seventh-generation Mormon.
1: You you have a lot—do you have lots of siblings? And
0: Yeah, I have— um, I have uh two older brothers and a younger sister, and they're all still in the church and I have um a lot of cousins and uh most of them are still in the church
1: okay so so how was your childhood was it was it kind of uneventful, just kind of rolling through primary and through the young men's program and scouts and all that
0: Sure, it was pretty normal, yeah, I went up and you know I was active my whole life I was a a uh, quiet kid, a pretty good student. Uh, I didn't get into much trouble. Um, I don't know if it's for want of motivation or for want of opportunity, but I, I didn't get into much trouble, and uh, you know, was an active deacon, teacher, and priest, and went on a mission, and got my Eagle Scout, and graduated from seminary in the whole nine yards.
1: No kidding, you got your Eagle Scout, huh?
0: Yes, I did.
1: That's imp- I'm still first class. <laughs> I never did make it all the way. <laughs> So so you served a mission. So so tell me a little bit about that. Where where did you go and some of the events leading up to that. Your decision making there.
0: Sure. Um now the mission call when it comes at least back then that was in 1992 when I started my mission. The location of the mission and the language are not written in the same paragraph. So I got my mission call and it came home and I was at BYU and um um, when it came, it came to my home. So my mother made me drive home. We lived in uh, Roy, Utah at the time, which is about, I don't know, about 70 or 80 miles north of uh, Provo. So I had to rush home and gather the family around. And then I opened it up and read it. And it said that I was called to the uh, the San Diego, California mission. And I, I have to tell you, uh, frankly, I was a little disappointed and I set it down and I tried to put on a smile, you know, cause everybody wants to go to some exotic, like foreign location and build a hut out in the, bush or whatever right and then you know 10 yeah, minutes bat- later
1: baptized I, in the ocean yeah yeah exactly
0: 10 minutes later i picked it up and it, it said you will learn the the um discussions in laotian and i i never heard of that i didn't know what that was so i went down to the library and looked it up and of course that's the language from laos um so i went to san diego in 1992 to serve in the laotian mission um that was among the uh asian refugees of course, after the Vietnam War, um, those who helped out the United States, including Laotians and Vietnamese and um, some tribal people known as the Hmong and um, Cambodians, had settled all over the country, and they, they had kind of congregated to certain places, and one of them was in Southern California. So we had 16 missionaries, four of each language group, um, who served uh, amongst our, uh, our missionary brethren, and um, had our own little mini mission. As you can imagine, we, we had two branches when I was there that we supported, and we divided the city of San Diego in half, and you would serve um, with the same guys over and over again.
1: So did you learn that? Like, I mean, did they teach you that language in the MTC, or did you have to wait till you get to the field for that? Or
0: No, we went to the MTC as a regular um, foreign mission group and learned the language the same way we were there the eight or nine weeks, and then uh, we went out to San Diego, and then We sort of had to do a lot of study um, of the language and and oftentimes of the culture. Now, a lot of missionaries, you know, if you're in Thailand, uh, you can go to the market and you can go to wherever and practice your language all day long, but we couldn't. And because I was in 1992, we were at the uh, tail end of the um, refugees. The branches had been very, very large when the... the, um, when the immigrants first started coming to the United States in the early eighties, the missionaries discovered them and the missionary work boomed. And at one time there were three bursting branches, um, in maybe even four in San Diego. But as the people became more comfortable in the United States and were more on their feet, um, they slowly dwindled. And now I don't even think there's a branch left in, in, uh, San Diego today. Um, so we had to spend a lot of time studying and trying to understand the people, and that's probably what led to one of my first real sort of um, testimony, um, I wouldn't say a buster, but, but something that kind of challenged my testimony. Um, when I was dealing with the people, especially near the end of my mission, after I understood the language a lot better, understood the culture a lot better, I realized we just weren't communicating. There was something kind of wrong and so I started to study Buddhism, um, not because I was particularly interested in becoming a Buddhist or anything like that, but I was trying to understand the people that I was trying to teach. Um, I, I noticed that members who'd been members for a long time, 15 years, some of them, been through the temple, served in leadership positions, there were some concepts they just didn't get. One of the things I figured out is those who translated the Book of Mormon um, and the other church materials had chosen words that existed in the language um, that match the words. For example, they had just chosen the the, the Laotian word for faith, for example. And um, the problem is the Laotian word for faith comes from the Bali word for faith, which comes from the um, Hindu sort of Buddhist concept of faith. And the nuances of the two words are probably not worth going into here, but they don't quite mean the same thing, uh, Christian faith and, say, Buddhist faith. And as I started going down this path, you know, the word they'd picked for priesthood— was referenced an old um, Brahmin priesthood, and they just picked the word because it sounded like priesthood, I guess. So we had, and then I went and visited a lot of the members. These are members who like say who had been the branch president and the Relief Society president. And I said, faith means blah, blah, blah. And I gave like the, the um, Buddhist definition. And I said, right. And they, oh, yes, Elder, now you finally get it. Now you're finally seeing it. And I realized that There was a big huge communication disconnect here and the people just really weren't getting it but um and it was because of those fundamental concepts of the of the the gospel that they didn't quite understand um and that process of trying to figure that out sort of opened my eyes up to a whole different way of viewing the world a whole different way of processing and i realized that the message we were delivering um wasn't necessarily having its intended effect and it wasn't necessarily making their lives better, for example, the people that we had taught um you know, they weren't going to the Buddhist temple on their holidays um you know, just like in in the Western world, most of our major holidays are tied up with Christianity. Well, all their holidays were tied up around Buddhism, and missionaries who came before I had had told them, no, 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 you you can't participate in any of that stuff, so oftentimes the members who had joined the church were isolated from their own culture, and from those community resources that normally we all rely on. So I realized that it wasn't as simple as going out and giving people the gospel. It just didn't work quite that way. The whole real story behind it all was much more difficult.
1: That's a fascinating story. <laughs> we could probably talk about that for a long time. So so from your mission as a whole, do you, do you hold it um, in high regard? Do you Do you have a lot of regrets? I mean, do you feel like that that was kind of your rock bed of your testimony? It
0: it wasn't a rock bed or regretful. I I don't resent the experience. Um, Missions are very, very difficult, and everybody hears that all the time, but they're difficult in ways that people who haven't been on them don't quite understand. For example, most of the time, or a lot of time on a mission, unless you're serving in, say, um, Honduras or something, you don't have anything to do. Um, You wake up in the morning, you have nobody to teach, you were tracting all day yesterday, all day the day before, Tracting gets nothing, you've exhausted the member list, you want to serve, you want to go out there and do something, but there is absolutely nothing to do, and that is mentally anguishing. Um, and even then, you can go and teach all sorts of people, and they're not listening, and they don't care, and you get the sense sometimes that the people who are listening are manipulating you, you know, they want... Um, the welfare or they want from the church or they want um, just to hang out with the missionaries to practice English or all sorts of things like that. So mentally, and, and this is all informed by the fact that your mission president and your district leader and your zone leader and the visiting general authorities are oftentimes really stressing not only that you need to be productive, but that your productivity on the mission is a reflection of your own righteousness or your own willingness to obey. And then there's another mix in there, and I, I realized this early on. This is probably my first epiphany. They give you more rules than you can obey. In, in a sense, in obedience, you're set up to fail. Um, so, like, we had a lot of tasks that we were—on my mission, we were—when I first got there, we were only supposed to read our mail from our families on P-Day. Now, now when we talk about P-Day, it's not really a day. Um, you were supposed to study until 9.30, so you kept your regular schedule. And then at 6, it ended at 6 o'clock. And, um, so we were supposed to study, we were supposed to do our laundry, we were supposed to get exercise, we were supposed to do all of our shopping, we were supposed to take care of our cars, do oil changes, do things like that, and we just couldn't get it all done in a single day, and so, you oftentimes like did laundry on Wednesday night, you know when you got in, but that was against the rules um so oftentimes there's this whole mental anguish, you want to be productive, but you can't, you know you're not being obedient, you know you're thinking about girls, you know you don't want to read the scriptures. So some people still thrive in a situation like that, but others who are a little bit more sensitive, sometimes it's a very difficult place to be in.
1: See, that's that's a very strange dichotomy. I mean, I I, I completely understand that mentality. It it can either make or break um, people's psy- psyche for sure.
0: <laughs> right, and most so, most people will reach some portion of their mission that's very difficult mentally, and um. I've read since stuff that, um, like soldiers in war, the kind of mentality and communication, that sort of band of brothers thing, and it also shows up people in prison. Um, As I've read about different things people do in prison, it's very similar to the way missionaries start to act and act out. Um, I've said before um, that I do not believe the Mormon Church is a cult, and I've argued that quite a bit. However, I think the missionary program is a cult. It fits every description. The haircuts, you're not allowed to contact your family. You're not allowed to use your name. Um, just every negative marker of a cult um, surfaces in a mission, and it really is sort of cultish. Some people can go on that sort of thing and thrive, and others can't. Um, I I did okay. Um, I don't regret it. I, I enjoy the experience. I enjoy the culture that I got to meet and greet those people, meet and greet that's what you do after sacramenting when you're single. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, it was a wealth of experience and it taught me a lot about my own religion, about my own self, but um psychologically, I think for some people missions aren't very healthy.
1: That's an interesting take. A mission is a cult. I guess I guess that means that you're probably not going to uh, let your boy grow up and go on a mission, huh? Uh, uh, we'd have to cross that bridge when we got to it, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you return home from your mission. Um, you go back to school. What happens there?
0: Yeah, I go back to school. Um, when I first got home, didn't have any money. So I didn't go right straight back to BYU. I spent a semester or two at Weber state, um, saved up some money. Then went back to BYU and I finished my degree. That's where I met my lovely wife, Zilpha. Uh, we got married, um, when I was 23 and she was 19 And I finished out the last year of school um, at the BYU, got a degree in linguistics.
1: Wow. So did Zilpha finish her degree as well?
0: No, she didn't. Um, She had done a year, and she wasn't sure she wanted to go forward with that. Um, So she um, uh, became a CNA and worked at that for a while. She got that to... That and then um, later, after we moved out of Provo, she finished her degree independent study from BYU. So she did finish the degree, but she didn't right after we got married.
1: Okay, so so you experienced a little bit of shake of of uh, of your testimony on your mission. You say a little bit about um, interpreting what faith means in in the language, in the different in the different definitions of it. Did you experience any other? questions or doubts or anything like that while you're at uh, at the Holy of Holies, BYU?
0: Well, maybe we should take a step back. Um, you know, I said I was an active youth, and I had prayed um, since I was a little kid about the Book of Mormon, and I never received any sort of answer. As a matter of fact, for my most of my life, prayer would be something I considered ineffectual for me. I know for some people it works. I never really felt good doing it, um, and I never really got anything that I'd consider an answer. Um, there is one exception to that. About when I was a senior um, in high school, This we were coming up on the holiday season, and for some reason I started thinking about going on a mission, and um, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm supposed to go on a mission and go preach this word out there, and I don't even know for sure if I believe it. Um, and... And, you know, I was a studious kid in, like, um, Sunday school. So I'd read the Bible, and I, I, or I'd read most of the parts. You know, whenever we were in class, I'd read that. So I decided that I was going to figure out the Book of Mormon. So what I started doing is every night—I think I started this around about January. Every night um, I would read for an hour or two hours or three hours, and I would pray throughout Um so I started reading the Book of Mormon straight through about two weeks into this. Now, this is on top of you know a rigorous schedule. I was taking calculus at the time and a lot of other classes. So I was basically just getting up in the morning doing my schoolwork, then just you know studying the Book of Mormon as intently as I could, then doing my homework and going to bed. I wasn't doing anything else at the time. And I started getting a little nervous or antsy um, about the fact that I hadn't gotten an answer, and I started putting a lot of intensity into it. And finally, um, around somewhere around about the Book of Alma, I know it was when one of the battle scenes. I kind of had this sort of, I would call it almost an emotional breakdown. I was tired. I was, and I felt really sort of good about the book. Um, and at the time, I interpreted that to be uh, sort of a spiritual manifestation that the book was true. But it didn't really play out that way. It was this overwhelming sense that everything would be sort of okay. Um, And, you know, once again, I was pushing myself really hard. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating right at the time. And then I, I, I finished reading the book. That sort of marked my sort of conversion to Mormonism in that, I became sort of zealous a- about it, not in a jerky sort of way, but like I had I had kind of a little bit longer hair. Now, this was the early 90s, so it would have been like shaved on one side and hanging over on the other side, you know, kind of like <laughs> the guys in The Simpsons, and I, I might have wore a little black, and I had on my Converse and my baggy pants that were, um, you know, rolled up and that sort of stuff. So I started dressing really straight-laced, and people noticed it, and my seminary teacher noticed I started attending. Um, so... And he actually even had me teach seminary for, like, um, a couple days at the end of the year. So I, I became, like, this sort of conversion story for him. Um, but even at the time, the, I, I was not certain, but I wanted it to be true, and I thought I'd come close enough. While this, Why this is important to our story is after I read the Book of Mormon, then I read the Bible, and then I started looking for other stuff to read, and I got— um, Joseph Fielding Smith's uh, teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith and that was one of the first books I read cuz so I'm like, oh, Joseph Smith is a great guy. And there were some weird things in there. Um and we always talk about putting them on the shelf. So that's when I started having um I started running into some things in church history that didn't quite fit. Um but I didn't really process them at the time. I just said, "Huh, that's kind of weird. Off to think about that later." So I'd actually started studying the gospel in depth about a year before my mission. And you know those things would start to of co- sort of
1: come back to me later so you so you, you use that that Book of Mormon experience that when you were reading in Alma is your emotional connection is that correct
0: Yeah you know people talk about epiphanies or like spiritual experiences a lot of people who maybe are apologists or whatever who, when they're confronted with the logic of proving the the church, which is very difficult to do in a logical sort of way, oftentimes they say they rely on on spiritual experiences. So that's the closest thing I came to a spiritual experience. I would categorize it now because the same sort of feeling I felt, I feel when I watch like a Rocky movie or something like that. So for me, it's really hard to say, oh, well, that, that, um, you know, that same experience I got watching the gladiator when he was, um, you know, running people through with his sword is the same way the, the um the spirit communicates to me, but I I do acknowledge that it was much more intense at that time. That time when I was doing the the fasting and the reading and the and the intense study. I
1: think I think this is an important um, point to make, is because a lot of apologists or even a lot of uh, members will say, well, John, the reason why you left the church is because you you never really had a strong testimony to begin with. Or you didn't make that emotional connection. You didn't uh, take Moroni's promise, and it didn't connect with you. You didn't allow Christ to enter your heart, right?
0: You could say that, I suppose, and it wasn't for want of trying. And I, I go back to when I was a nine-year-old kid, just praying my little guts out, trying to get that answer and not receiving anything. Now, a lot of the um, defenders of the church might say something like, well, you know, that was your trial of faith, or that's what God wanted you to do, or whatever. But I don't think that was clear to me as a nine-year-old. I, th- I felt I was defective.
1: Wow. Okay. So, so you're, you're done with college. You've now married your lovely wife, Silfa Um, so lead us through that. I mean, what kind of church callings did you get into like leadership? Um, any, um, Sunday school kind of stuff and how, how did, uh, the beginnings of, of the cracks and the doubts start to, to waver?
0: Well, um, so right after we got married, we lived in Provo, um, and we, rather than go to a student ward when we first got married, we went to the family ward. We decided we'd be more comfortable there. The student ward sort of creeped us out a little bit. Um, and uh, we actually later lived in one. But um, we went to church, and right away, like within the first week, and I'm trying to think if it is even before. They might have got our records before we actually went to church because we got our records transferred when we were getting married. We might have been on our honeymoon. But anyway, it was right away we got called into the primary. Um and we only, that whole, we lived there for a year, and we knew two people. There there was another couple who are home teachers. A, a guy and his wife would come home teach us. Those are the only people we ever knew outside their children, because um, we were in the primary. We were single. We didn't have any kids. I mean, we were we were a young couple, married couple without any children, so we went right away into the primary. Um, then we moved to Wymount for a while, and that was a mistake, um, I just didn't fit in there and neither did my wife. We just never felt comfortable there. We were there about 6 months and then we um we got I got a job elsewhere so we moved up to um Weber County and once again um at, at this time we were working shift work so we went we would go to church but but off and on they didn't give us any callings. In the next couple of wards we we lived in, we didn't have any children. We didn't have any children for several years after we got married. We were always put into the primary or such callings like that, the young men's, young women's. The one thing that happened there is that we, 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 we're not real outgoing people. We're kind of shy. So we wouldn't have any adult contact. We wouldn't get to know anybody in the ward. So I think that probably contributed to... Um, that we didn't love the church. You know, we, we would leave the church. We liked going to church on some level, but some people just absolutely love it. And it never was that way for us. Uh, additionally, the fact that we never had, we, we, we weren't able to have children those first few years.
1: It's hard to John, La- John Larson's not outgoing. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Keep going. It, it, it's,
0: it's easy behind a, a microphone out here, but okay. you know, um, <laughs> um, when, when you don't have any children, People treat you a little bit differently because, and this goes for single people and and all that. The church is set up around families, so um, people will ask you when you're going to have children, and if you're trying to have children and you can't, uh, um, which we were there in the beginning, we you know we we wanted to have children. You you get a little bit defensive, and also, I mean that's that's really an inappropriate thing to ask somebody when they're going to have children, and absolutely. Um, you know, we would get asked that by bishops, we'd get asked it by old ladies in the hall, and you feel less of a person. You know, sometimes people in the church love to say, well, the the men have the priesthood and the women have motherhood. If you're a woman and you're unable to have children, um, you're just out of luck. Um, because, you know, there's no way to remedy that situation. So the women who are in those sorts of situations often feel awful. And I don't think it, we never went home like crying ourselves because we didn't have children, but we didn't feel fully participant in the church. And once again, because we were unencumbered by children, the church would use us as um, service mules. We were always put into those, those sort of callings where, um, you know, you, you, you were serving the children or serving the youth, that sort of thing. Um,
1: did, did that did that ever play on you? I mean, the fact that you, you and Zilpha had callings that had to deal with children, um, knowing that you couldn't have children.
0: Yeah, and and that they would actually say sometimes, believe it or not, that you know we know you'd be great parent, and here you can be the 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 parents of all the children of the ward and stuff and stuff uh. like that, um, and that, that stuff. Um, I guess it plays out with some people, but it's just, it's just difficult. Um, it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. It's crossing the line. Um, and, you know, and it, what it did is it contributed in our disaff- disaffection from the church. I've said before that in order to leave the church, you need to have two things. Um, one, you have to not like church very much. And two, you have to not believe it's true. If you don't believe it's true, but you like it, you'll keep going if you um don't like it but you believe it's true you'll keep going so unless <laughs> unless those two line up so I think in most everybody who's left the church you will find that on some level they didn't like church at least at some point and they don't believe it's it's true so I think that contributed to our um, lack of strong attachment to the community um, so
1: you so you started to gain a distaste for the church before you starting having doubts in its authenticity
0: yeah and and I, after i read the bible when i read the new testament back there in my senior year um i sort i sort of switched my um leaning i i would probably count myself as fairly conservative like um you know politically like most people in utah are. after i <laughs> um read the new testament i switched um uh the teachings of jesus kind of touched me and i became Much more interested as a matter of public policy, as um, you know, I I would view the government as an extension of the people, meaning the government is we, the people. That we had a role to take care of and taking care of the sick and the and the poor and that that sort of thing. And I, it also installed me sort of a pacifism that I didn't have before. That I thought that military action was generally wrongheaded. Maybe I had that bent before, but the point is, having those sort of inklings, you know, more democratic, more liberal in your thinking, also alienates you from the church. So, um, I, you know, I had those all the way along. And so I was always felt like an outsider and a little bit in the church. And if you've gone to church, especially in Utah, people will make jokes at the expense of say Democrats all all the time. And if you're, (laughs) if you're not sensitive to that, and I wasn't particularly sensitive, but it's one of those things that starts wearing down on you because you can't defend yourself. You know, when somebody in elders quorum makes a wisecrack that, you know, the Democrats are really communists, you can't say anything, you're gonna sound like an asshole. So you have to just kind of sit there and take it. Um and and I think these sort of things led uh Zilfa and I both to not be as, you know, the 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 community wasn't as um, nurturing for us. It wasn't satisfying spiritually whether or not we believed it was true. Now this time we still believed it to be true.
1: So you found, so both you and Zilfa were both feeling at odds with certain uh cultural or social things with the church right and 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 for me i i can also attest to um your priesthood leader saying you can't be a good mormon and a democrat so i've heard that as well
0: yeah and and it's it's not universal i mean harry Reid is is the most powerful democrat in the in the country right um and he's a mormon but it's and and if you confront people they say oh yeah it's okay but that constant like Jabbing, I think, tends to wear people down.
1: Um, but but that's not necessarily uh, uh, an effect from the church itself. That's more or less just kind of a social thing from the members, right?
0: It's a cultural thing, but sometimes they're hard to separate. I mean, the church, yeah. the church knows this sort of stuff happens. You know, they every year they they have their obligatory um, statement that says that they don't support one party or the other. But you would be blind to not see. You know, that um, Orrin Hatch's books are prominently displayed at Deseret Book, and there's nothing from Harry Reid there, that sort of thing. It's not hard.
1: Or read read any of uh, President Ezra Taft Benson's material.
0: Yeah, or Joseph F. Smith or, you know, uh, David O. McKay. You know, especially if you read back in the 60s and 50s, it wasn't just Benson. Benson is lightning rod because he was such a nut. But um, <laughs> that stuff is is all around, and it's not hard to get at. And you know, if you if you go through the Utah legislature and tick off who's a stake president, who's a bishop, and all that sort of stuff, you, you'd be quite surprised how many of those people serve in, in political call and political um, positions. Well, what does that if if you're a member of the church and you go to your stake, and your stake president is a kind of very conservative Republican. I think most people just say, "Well, republicanism is is what I should do. That's what my leaders do, and that's what I look up to." So, just statistically, more Mormons are going to go after that sort of thing. But it's no it's no secret that um, Utah is generally the reddest of the red states; that it it pulls hard to the right.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so you and Zilpha, uh, you know, you're finding yourselves odds. Lead us up to the events, because because I'm I'm anxious to hear how how both of you. We're kind of on the same page as the the development of of questioning and doubts and research went.
0: So uh, we were living in Smithfield, um, which is about seven or eight miles north of Logan, kind of a little um, dairy community that's grown up in the the mountains north of uh, Salt Lake City. And we had a really great ward, the best ward we've been in. And this is the ward we had our children in. And before we had our children, we had foster children. Um, We were foster parents for a while. And the ward was very supportive, and we had a lot of a lot of friends there. And I I think partly having children lended us some credence. Um uh, in that ward, I was the gospel doctor and teacher. Um before that I'd served as like a ward clerk, um, you know, and I'd served in elders' quorum callings, and that that sort of stuff before. And so th- this is a probably, you know, we lived up there during my late twenties, very early thirties. Um and At that time, I um, had collected some—my mother has done a lot of genealogy work on um, different family members, not only doing the genealogy, but she's collected journals and stories and all sorts of stuff. Well, when I was at BYU, I landed on um, a history of Vincent Knight, the one I mentioned before, that had been written by, I think, his granddaughter, and it was very interesting. And I started wanting to do some research into Vincent. Now, I was doing some online research, and there was a little bit of a controversy of Vincent. We all knew that Vincent died in 1842. That was not of any dispute. He, um, he got either tuberculosis or malaria or something like that and died. And we all knew in the family that Joseph Smith had then married uh, Martha McBride, who was his, um, you know, his sweetheart and his, his, his wife from when he was young. Well, I started doing some research in order to— I wanted to write a history of him to help with my mother's genealogy— and um, it turns out that um, the date on the wedding to, to Joseph Smith happened before he died, uh, the Vincent that is. Well, holy cow! I what you know? And I knew there was some controversy behind it, so I, I looked up some of the things, and that's when I um, read the um, "In Sacred Loneliness," um, um, Todd Compton, uh, Todd Compton's book.
1: So- so that led you to Todd Compton's book? Yeah. You didn't you didn't you didn't think, oh the days must be wrong.
0: <laughs> no, no, yeah. I well, I did research and I, I um, and he has a whole chapter on on Martha McBride. And at that point, um and, and this this stayed with me for a long time. I decided I didn't trust anything that was written by anybody. I wanted to see source material. Um polygamy had always bugged me from way, way, way back. I'd never quite been able to resolve it, and it never really struck me as right, but I'd always put it on the shelf. Well, this sort of reopened that polygamy thing, and I finally said, well, I'm going to get to the bottom of polygamy. Um, I want to, instead of just saying I don't know, I want to gain basically a testimony of polygamy and decide whether or not it is true in the afterlife, because most Mormons, you know, when they're sitting around talking about the secrets of the kingdom, there's a, quite a bit of a disagreement among Mormons as to whether or not polygamy is still in practice. I think a lot of people outside the Church don't realize this, and we don't tend to air this to—except the, the filthy apostates, but the insiders <laughs> don't tend to air this to other, other people outside the faith, but it is still a thriving controversy as to whether or not polygamy has been completely discontinued or just suspended— so quite a few people believe that, for example, we might practice polygamy in the afterlife, or there might be a restoration at some point, because the, the, the revelations are not exactly clear that polygamy was was um, quit, that it was just stopped or halted. So I started reading everything um, I could on polygamy. I started with um, Berga's book, um, um, The Mysteries of Godliness, and um, then I started reading down his um, bibliography as much as I could get my hands on. Now, a lot of the, he wrote his book, he was part of the Camelot um, graduate students who who had unprecedented access to the church um, records. Did the same thing with some of Quinn's stuff. I would read Quinn's stuff, which was fascinating, and would search out whatever source material I could find of his that I could read. So I ended up, from that polygamy thing, reading a lot about um, Joseph Smith, and I decided I was going to read everything I could that Joseph Smith wrote, um, and I read everything that's been published that he wrote, and I read about Sidney Rigdon, and I started reading about church history, and I fell into the um, ex-Mormon reading frenzy, which a lot of people do, which is you as you start uncovering this stuff, you know, you start uncovering polyandry, you know, Joseph Smith marrying other men's wives, um, Sarah Pratt. You know, they sent Orson Pratt away, and she apparently lived with John C. Bennett for a while, and then she lived with um, Willard Richards for a while, and there's some dicey stuff going on there. And th- you know, this is all open in the in the journals. You can read, you, you know, read Clayton's journal and Joseph Smith stuff, and uh, um, and you know people like Sidney Rigdon, who are just buried in church history, and you start reading all the weird things they're saying. Anyway, it just started this big sort of feeding frenzy. I read book after book after book after book after book, everything I could get my hands on. And meanwhile, my t- testimony is just starting to shatter. Um, Because the foundations of my belief, oftentimes we would use this reasoning. I remember saying to Zilpha a lot of times in, when we were younger, you know, well, um If you say we ran into a problem, something that was a head scratcher in the Book of Mormon, like horses, we'd say, well, I don't know for sure about the Book of Mormon, but I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. Therefore, the Book of Mormon has to be true. At the same time, you know, a week later, we might say, find something weird about Joseph Smith and say, well, but look at the Book of Mormon. I mean, you can't just write the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon testifies that Joseph Smith was a prophet. So we were stuck in sort of a circular thinking. And when I started pulling the thread on that sweater, for me, it started coming undone. So at this at this time, I was teaching um, adult Sunday school. And we we rotated on to the Book of Mormon class, and um, so I thought, okay, I'll get to read the Book of Mormon again because one of the coping strategies I had subconsciously, um, this is before I started really studying, is if I ran into something controversial or something that kind of affected my testimony, I would just not go there. So I hadn't read the Doctrine and Covenants for years because whenever I'd read it, I think this is just a pile of crap. Um, so, so I would stay away from that kind of stuff. Cause I, it would just, it would just make me scratch my head and say, you know, if God ha- hasn't been talking to mankind for 1600 years, this is what he has to say. Um, so, so I just wouldn't put, I put that aside now I was going to tackle it full front. And, and, um, so in that class, I taught the class very well. I think, I think most people, um, w- who enjoyed my class, um, because I wouldn't necessarily bring up all the problems that I was finding but by the end of that, I was convinced that the book, the Book of Mormon, was not divine. And my testimony had pretty well slid about as far as it could go. Now, during this time, I was trying every belief pattern. You know, we talk about New Order Mormons or Sunstone Mormons, or I tried on every one of those 31 flavors at one time or the other. I tried to, you know, just go and put my faith on a shelf. So so I tried every mechanism I could. I did not want to end up outside the church. I did not want to end up in non-belief. And whatever sort of thing I could grasp onto, Zilf and I became involved in Sunstone at the time. We we read the magazine, went to the conference, and it was more an effort to try to find other ways that we could um, salvage our faith. Now, the question you asked before I just went off on that big rant was how Zilf and I stayed um, together, lockstep, well you have to remember that we had been through that that period of of uh, in our early marriage where we didn't have children and you know we would come home exhausted from church or, or or you know worn out or somebody had said something you know like on Mother's Day about how children were you know that God must love this particular sister because she gave God gave um, her seven children and we would talk about that stuff. We were always very communicative in our relationship. And luckily that just continued that as I would find something I would tell her as she would fi- find things um she would tell me and and she was actually much more people especially in our family assumed that i was the one leading her like down the 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 forbidden path but oftentimes like I would read um let's say no man knows my history and i found the book kind of devastating to my testimony and I put it away and she you know she said are you done with it I said, yeah, I'm done with it. Um, and she said, well, I'm going to read it now. And I tried to talk her out of it. I said, you know, there's some stuff in there that might um, damage your testimony. She read about 20 pages and then put it down and said, uh, the church isn't true. So she was much more um, willing to accept some of these things that I would bend my mind around and try to find these blasted solutions. So she was much brighter than I was because she would read a little bit or find out a little about Sidney Rigdon, read one of his sermons. And then she would say, well, this guy's just a blowhard. Um so so she was much more able to process the stuff than I was. But really we 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 kept talking to each other the whole time. And you have to understand we never thought that we would end up outside the church. That was never that never occurred to us. We were just finding new pieces of information and trying to process them and understand them in in our own way and um yeah, that's kind of where we ended up.
1: Okay, so so you guys are going through the, both together. You're kind of going on on this crisis of faith this dark night of the soul that both of you are going down lead us up to i know i know there was a newspaper article that's kind of a turning point for for both of you lead us up to that and how that event changed things
0: well so in 2005 we we moved now when we were in logan um jeff ricks who we had on one of the previous podcasts um he had the post mormon group and they would meet every sunday night in up in logan Now, I never went. Not once. Never been. But I knew it was there. I saw it in the paper. I saw it every week, and it gave me some sort of comfort. It gave me some sort of hope that, hey, there are other people out there like this. Now, as you go through this pattern of leaving the church, you become more and more isolated because what will happen is you'll bring up like a little smidge of an issue in Elder's Quorum, and they will pull right back. Um, And you quickly realize that people do not want to talk to you about this stuff. Um, And so and oftentimes you don't, you know, for us, we never went to the bishop because we, we didn't know that he would necessarily help us out. Um, so, and maybe he would have, maybe that was unfair, but we were growing more and more lonely and isolated in the church because church itself became less fulfilling. Um, we would notice more things that, that bothered us, that people would say that were insensitive or things that we knew were false. You know, um, if you go to church after you've studied church history, you'll know that about once every three or four weeks, somebody will say something that's flat out wrong about the history or whatever. So that start, sort of stuff starts really bugging you. Well, we moved, uh, the company I worked for moved to Salt Lake and we moved down to Layton in um, 2005 and getting a new ward. We didn't have the friends and the connection we had in our previous ward. Um, they put Zilpha in a calling like they always do in the nursery um and you know at this point she was saying i don't even believe in god anymore but she was she was um still willing to serve in the nursery and um she wouldn't go to sacrament meeting at all because it drove her nuts um i would go sometimes now our kids at this time were little powder kegs they did not like to sit through the meeting and we would use that up in the up in smithfield when they cried you know we'd go out the foyer and then keep going all the way home but um <laughs> um i would tr- i would go to priesthood quite a bit and sunday school i enjoyed sunday school and Every once in a while, I'd go to sacrament meeting, so I was still semi-active. Um, then there came a point where I went to church, and the the um, Sunday school lesson was on Isaac and um, uh, Jacob and Isaac the the um, the um, sacrifice on the altar.
1: Oh yeah, Abraham. Yeah, yeah, Abraham and
0: Isaac. I'm sorry, not Jacob. Abraham and Isaac, um, and. I don't know when, when you don't accept the Bible as like literally true, that story is horrific. And that thing hit me like a tongue in a brick. And I was looking around the room, talk, everybody was talking about this thing. And I raised my hand and I said, um, if God tells us to kill our firstborn son, should we obey? <laughs> that was my question. Um, the room erupted. That was not a very, um, and, and I wasn't trying to be like a big jerk. It just wasn't—I mean, I was seriously concerned that that we were just accepting this the behavior that would be—we would consider criminally insane today, that the people in the room were extolling as a matter of righteousness and faith, that, you know, that he didn't have any evidence to support this, but he went on it. You know, it was going on and on about faith and blind obedience, and I was saying, hold on here— um, we're talking about something that's heinous. I, I, it would never be right to try to all, offer up your son on an altar. And when I say the room erupted, there were some people who were upset at me. They didn't call me any names or anything, but it stirred a lot of controversy, a lot of murmuring. I do have to say there were people who came to my defense who said, no, he's got a really good point. Um, but the answers that people gave, um, especially there were some like high council sort of guys in there, and they, they were very condescending in their ter- tone. And they're... they're, they're their answer was, this is not a proper question to ask. You shouldn't ask this question. It's not allowed, um, right. rather than deal with it. Um, and then I went to sacrament meeting, and I guess there's a guy in the stake, I, I don't know, I didn't go to sacrament meeting very much, who um, they had been studying the scriptures with, and he got up, um, this is his sacrament talk, and he grabbed the, other, the both sides of the pulpit, you know, like they do, like the high councilmen do. Yep. And he started surveying the crowd. And he started nodding his head slowly. I'm sure I'm exaggerating this in my memory, but this is the way I remember it. <laughs> and there was this long period of, you know, quiet where he didn't say anything. And then he reached down, and he grabbed his triple combination or scriptures, whatever. And he he held it up high above his head. And I thought, what the hell is this guy doing? Because I'd never seen him before. You know, we'd moved in just a couple months before. And suddenly everybody in the congregation started lifting their scriptures up into the air. I guess this is a symbol that he had used um, in his teaching to show that you had your scriptures. I thought, my gosh, this is a friggin' cult, um, because it was just—it was just scary. Because I hadn't seen anything like that in church before, and you know, everybody was doing this in, in utter silence, and and you know, and then he went on, gave kind of a smug sort of high council talk. I know you're in the high, you were in the high council, Tom. So yeah, I was going to say, please, I'm getting a
1: little, a little defensive here. No, please God. forgive my 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 uh, slides <laughs> on the high okay. council. but that's
0: the last time I ever went to sacrament. Meeting. Um, I I actually got up and left. I just I said, this is not for me. This is not. This is not doing it for me. Um,
1: it's it's interesting when you talk about the Abraham Isaac story and that that was a big an issue for you. The one for me was the Sodom and Gomorrah when when Lot goes in there and you know and everybody wants to uh, rape the new angels that have showed up and he's like no 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 take my daughters instead. Right right. I remember I remember asking a questions very similar to that and I was like okay so it's not okay to have sex with angels. But it is okay to have sex with your virgin daughters. Right. Very yeah.
0: Smart. Yeah. I mean there's there's so much and you know, and once you start looking at the Bible or the Book of Mormon critically, things start to fall apart. Now, when when I started losing my faith, I assumed that I would end up as a liberal Christian. Um, around about I don't know exactly when it happened. After I'd studied, i read, you know, three or four hundred books on Mormonism. I mean, literally I'd read that many I spent 6 months just doing hardly anything but reading up on um on Mormonism. I started reading up on Christianity. Um, and it what the question that intrigued me was um well the church says that it's a restoration of the ancient order and as I read around I found out that you know when the King James Bible was written we didn't have that many manuscripts and the King James Bible really wasn't a translation at all, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, but yeah. there have been literally thousands of ancient tr- manuscripts that have been found since then. So I started thinking, oh, this is fascinating. Now we can get a, a glimpse back in time. And I read the books, you know, and is it Bert, um, or er- or er- 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 Bert, whatever his name. Bart, Bart Erman? Yeah. You know, yeah. he has some really good books that give you an introduction into that sort of higher criticism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and explains how. The passages change over time. This is something I really understood from linguistics. and linguistics, we study very scientifically how languages systematically change over time. So that's something that really resonated with the education I had. I really understood how those mechanisms work. And in, as you look back in time, you can see the changes that were made in the manuscripts. Well, as a young, as a young person, I was taught that you know, basically, when I was a kid in the 70s, uh, the church was much more openly ho- hostile to the Catholics. Um And we were taught that, you know, it was the Catholics who had, who had, um you know, raped the Bible, they had taken all the good parts out. And, you know, if we had the Bible in its original text, we would see, bam, um right there on the page is, you know, Pace in Utah Mormonism right there. So um that as, as you start looking back in time, you see, that's not the case, you know, the um, second century texts of Mark that we have, for example, and when Jesus dies. And if you read Mark right now and go to the, you know, chapter 15, the last few verses, it says, Oh, and Jesus died. Then it says, Oh, and then he came back to life. And there's all these angels. Hallelujah. The end. And none of the old scripts have that in there. So you can see that, yes, the Mormons were right, that there had been changes in the, in the scripture over time. No, they weren't right. That it had been done systematically by the devil to, 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 well, I guess you could still argue that, but but <laughs> the, the scriptures became less miraculous, less divine, sort of, as they went back in time. So the the point—I just used that example to show how my faith in Christianity crumbled along. As a matter of fact, I've said before, and I don't know if it's true anymore or not, that's, my memory's a little foggy, that I lost my faith in, in, in Christ as a resurrected God before I lost my faith in Joseph Smith. Um, and they really kind of crumbled together.
1: That's amazing to hear, um, <laughs> me, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that. So both you and Zilpha would consider yourself agnostic, kind of an atheist kind of approach now?
0: Um, at times I consider myself an atheist. I'm probably more of an agnostic. Actually, what I like to say I am is an apatheist, which is somebody who doesn't care if God exists or not, which um, sounds like a joke, but it's, it's really true for me. I I... Anymore, I don't find the question of the existence of God to be interesting, because it really doesn't answer anything. Uh, let's say that you could definitively prove that there was a God. Well, just the fact that the, the God exists, or that God created—let's say you could prove definitively that God created the earth. Well, that doesn't prove that he's still alive. I mean, you can see that the Eiffel Tower was created by an individual, but that doesn't prove that that creator is still alive. It doesn't prove that the creator is good or bad. It doesn't prove if the creator is indifferent to humanity— um, it doesn't it doesn't really prove that there's the universe is moral or that there's an afterlife you know so we spend a lot of time spinning on the question of whether or not there's a god but it's really a silly question because nothing follows from the, the answer to that question um we just really don't don't know anything else so a lot of people will go through a proof sort of uh, you know descartes did this he went through his proof of god and then he just establishes the whole catholicism right after that in in a in a sleight of hand maneuver. And a lot of people do that. They say, oh, these things lead me to believe there's a God and therefore all this other garbage. But, you know, um, almost all religions believe in God. You know, you can go out to Papua New Guinea and those people believe in God, but there's, that doesn't look anything like, um, you know, Protestant America. So so there's really not much that follows from that that sort of belief.
1: That's interesting. Okay, so why don't you explain for the audience Your motivation for wanting to start a project like Mormon Expression and some of your goals for it.
0: Well, if we go back a little bit, um, so after I moved down to Layton, you know, I had I had gone through that pain, even while I was in the church, of feeling isolated and lonely and sort of lost. And um, two things happened during that period. I I gained an empathy for other people who were in that sort of situation. Uh, All of Jeff Ricks, who did the um, the post-Mormon group that met there. So I knew that others were suffering the same sort of thing we had. They were feeling the same loneliness. They were feeling lost. They were feeling that there was nobody they could reach out to. And I became very empathetic to those sort of people. Secondly, I developed a real un- interest in mormonism when you go and study something like that it just becomes interesting to you so even though i lost my faith in mormonism i gained my interest in mormonism it just became something that was fascinating in and of itself and i can't explain that other than it just was you know some people like football other people um, collect pokemon cards i think mormonism is fascinating so so those two things kind of work together to sort of motivate me and um like a lot of people at the time i got involved on the boards So I started posting under pseudonyms early, and then in about 2004, I switched to my real name, if you go and search the boards, and it was kind of my sort of trying to own my own faith and say, well, I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of being in the shadows. I want to own my own stuff. And also, when you post underneath your real name, you're more um, introspect about saying really stupid things. So I I wanted to, to keep myself honest. Um, I think around about 2007, um, I got involved in some of the post-Mormon community around about um, the Layton area and the Salt Lake City area. I started getting together with people. And when you meet, you know, after you've been through a situation like that and you meet up with others the first time, it's like coming home. Um, As a matter of fact, there is a, a, a couple that just recently moved into our area here who have left the church. And it's almost like you're old, old friends, you know, because that aspect of being Mormon is still there. And even though the Mormons always say, well, not everybody, but a lot of them say, okay, you've left the church, now just go away, just forget about it, don't talk about it anymore, don't bother us, don't, it's not that easy. You know, I was a Mormon for a long time, and Mormonism was involved in everything in my life. Every major event, every major milestone, every major family thing was all tied up in the church. My my marriage, my mission, my you know all the rites of passage, becoming a deacon, becoming a teacher. So my whole life was just in a, in, in, inseparably connected to Mormonism. And suddenly here I was outside the church and outside of belief. Um, so that still, even though I was over a lot of the anger, that still is something I had to process and still do. I, you know, in a lot of sense, I'm like a recovered alcoholic. That doesn't mean after you go through the twelve step program, stop drinking and start drinking again. You know, you kind of have to be vigilant about that your whole life. Not that I have to be vigilant; and I'm going to fall back into Mormonism. But some of the, <laughs> the pain points are still there. Anyway, I started um, I started up a chapter of the post Mormon group in, there in Layton um, at the library where I you know I I posted in the newspaper, I posted it online where it would give people a chance to come and talk and 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 find other. Um, Post Mormons, and really, my motivation always was two things: I wanted to meet people that I could talk to, that um, w- could understand what I've been to, and I wanted—I really wanted to help. Um, I knew that a lot of people were suffering out there in silence, and I was right. The, there's some dear friends that I still have that either saw my flyer at the at the library or read it in the paper, and there's some people who um, I won't go into, but there's some people who were involved in earlier parts of my life that I eventually have reconnected with as, you know, sort of post-Mormons as people have gone beyond that. So, um, I've met some really valuable people in my life that way. So in, uh, 2008, we moved out to North Carolina for work. I'd finished graduate school and we had moved out here and, um, I had really been influenced. Um, I really enjoyed, I should say, um, some of John's podcasts, um, John DeLynn's podcasts on, um, on um Mormon stories Mormon stories and I'd also enjoyed Mark, Mike Norton's podcast that him and Hiram did on the church is not true so so you had those two polls that that they, they made me laugh and he and Mike Norton had Bob McHugh on one and there were some really and um, Polygamy Porter and some of those guys who really gave you some food 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 for thought so I enjoyed listening to him and some of them like Bob McHugh's um, podcast on the church is not true. I listened to it over and over again because Bob really said some things that really resonated with me. Um, and so I thought that might be kind of interesting. I had in the back of my mind that I'd like to kind of pick up where that left off because nobody was doing anything like that. And being sort of isolated out here, I couldn't do my little Mormon groups anymore. So I thought the podcast might be an excellent way to do that. Now you asked about the um newspaper article and I I passed that by. Um when yeah, sorry. When, when I started the um podcast when I started the um pod- the uh, group that met at the the library there in Layton. Um we we advertised in the community section, the free section where churches and all that could advertise and we put the little ad there. And eventually after I did it for a couple months, uh, one of the reporters called me up and said, "Hey, um can we talk to you about this? So um, she did an interview, and we'll post a link to that article that appeared in the Ogden Standard Examiner, where she interviewed me and she interviewed um, Jeff Ricks um, um, from the post-Mormon group and talked about post-Mormon. It was really kind of a nice article. It wasn't very mean. I think, I think both Jeff and I kind of expressed our, our opinion well. Well, you have to understand that we had not come out to anybody. Now, we had quit wearing our garments, and we were inactive— but there was seemed to be a big "don't ask, don't tell" policy among our family members. Now that's not exactly true, because Zilpha was more was better than I was, and she had called up her parents and said, "This is the way it is. Um, you know, we've left the church." Da 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 da. I didn't have the cojones to do that, and I hadn't called up my parents. And part of it was a belief on my part, which I'm not sure if I was right or not, that um, my mother especially didn't want to hear it that she didn't want to talk about it, that they knew that I had concerns with the church. They knew that we had stopped talking about the church. You know, because Mormons, when they get together, talk about callings and talk about the church nonstop. So they knew it had been a couple years since we'd even mentioned the church. They knew we weren't wearing garments. Um, um, we didn't dress fra- fragrantly, I mean um, flagrantly, but Mormons will do um, the pat. My mom would feel my shoulder to feel for the garment line. Um, you
1: didn't do the wife beater shirt to make it obvious? No,
0: no. <laughs> No, thank goodness. Okay. Um, I I do remember one time we had been at a party. We were throwing water balloons around or whatever, and I was wearing black underwear, and they showed through my shorts. So I kind of got caught. Um, They didn't say anything at the time. But anyway, um, the the article appeared in the newspaper on Saturday morning, and I received a phone call at about 7 a.m. from my mother who had read it and i went over to my parents and we had to talk about my leaving the church and what that meant for me and my family and it was really a bad move on my part that i hadn't been more forthcoming um with them but that's that's kind of how they found out um interestingly enough of my siblings, I told you I have two brothers and a sister. None of us have ever talked about the fact that I have left the church or don't go to church. I actually haven't left the church; we're still members, but I mean, obviously, we're non-believers. But uh, other than my parents, no one in my family has ever even mentioned the fact that I, I don't go to church.
1: Have, have you have you ever been motivated to sit them down and say, "Hey, why is this an uncomfortable topic"? bring it up.
0: I've said that to my parents. Um, um, but it's been my experience that a lot of LDS people see that sort of conversation as hostile. I don't know why they do. And maybe, and
1: because, because they feel like their are their own faith might be threatened in the discussion, I think.
0: So I think that, um, you know, and this is getting into some, you know, family stuff that's kind of personal, I guess, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, during the during the years that Zilpha and I sort of drifted out of the church, so it was a slow move for us. I think that drifted space between um, Zilpha and I, and um, especially my siblings, um, and I think that's just kind of been the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room for a long time. I do know from talking to my mother, uh, my parents, and I still keep really good relationship. And uh, you know, we go to fa- when we go out to Utah, we go to family parties, and it's just not mentioned. People just don't talk about it. So we, I, I know other people whose family has said all sort of hurtful things to them, and no one has ever said anything like that. People have treated us very, very well. Um, a lot of ex Mormons talk about these experiences they've had with church leaders or family members, and I, for the most part, have not experienced that. Um, uh, my family has been wonderful that way, but there is kind of this big silence, um, about the topic that exists. And, and that's kind of sad.
1: Well, that's a, that's a good thing though, that things have been positive for you. Okay. So back to your podcast, um, you say that you kind of wanted to build off John Dillon and, and uh, Mike and Hiram's podcast. Are, are you hoping that your podcast helped lead people out of the church?
0: Um, I, I have no really no such interest in that. Um, John obviously went through and you, and you can you all can listen to the podcast we did with John. Um, he went through kind of an existential crisis as he kind of confronted these issues. Um, one of the main differences between John and I there's there's a lot of differences. I mean he, he he has a lot a lot of talent and stuff that I don't have. But one of the main differences between us is I had finished my processing of the church. so if if anything we talked about in the podcast were to affect me, What's the worst case that would happen? Well, I'd go back into the church, right? There's nowhere else to go once you you're you're out of the church. It's not like I can become more out of the church or <laughs> become more agnostic or whatever. So yeah. so for me, um I think that I I was coming from a a basement that, that John didn't have. Because John was still trying to work through this, trying to make it work, and and as I I listened to his podcast again before I did, and I really enjoyed him, I think he did a great job. But you can hear in the podcast John trying to work through and contextualize stuff, and part of it that's what makes it interesting. You know, when he's talking to Gregory Prince um, about David O. McKay, it's a very interesting discussion. But it's all about this. Well, we have all these facts here. How do we make it work? For me, I don't have to make it work. It, you know, it is what it is, and I have my beliefs about, like, metaphysics and that sort of thing, but in a, in a sense, it doesn't matter. So I came from a position where I wasn't out to prove anything. And, you know, people have asked me that, you know, what's your motive? Are you trying to lead people out of church? Honest to goodness, I really don't care if people stay in the church or not. However, I think there are aspects of the church that for some people or many people can be very unhealthy. Um, and for those people— um, I think that if we can um, diffuse those things, um, I used the metaphor before. If there's anything I want to do to the church, it's I want to declaw it because it still causes a lot of pain and suffering to a lot of people. Um, so if somehow we can talk about these things and bring them out into the light, that that can help people psychologically deal with their own reaction to it. Take our take our interview that we did with Elna Baker, Tom. You know where I think where she was able to bring out her own sexuality in that book and say, look, I'm a Mormon and I'm a believing Mormon on some, but I'm also a sexual being. I'm also, you know, alive and real and trying to make the world work. I think that describes the experience that most Mormons have, but they're just not allowed to talk about it. So we have this great fertile ground of things that we can talk about in the podcast because the church has ceded the territory to us. Mormons can't go and talk about that. They're just things they're not allowed to talk about. You know, they can go, talk about like whether or not to drink Coke or Pepsi, but it'll end up in an argument, but they really can't say, for example, well, is it okay to drink beer? I mean, that's just off, off grounds. And, um, there's a lot of other topics like that, that, that we address that people just couldn't get up and and talk about the, um, Podcast we just posted recently with Mitch Horowitz talking about the occult and the rise of Mormonism, some fascinating stuff that is that very historical. You can't go and give a Sunday school lesson about that. So there's this whole untapped world of interesting things about the church that, I, that I, I want to talk about, that I want to have a dialogue about, that I, that I think are interesting. So that's my primary motivation. It's not to lead people in or out of the church. It's that these things are interesting in and of themselves. And if, if as a secondary thing, I can help people better process their own faith and better get to a place where they're happy, if somebody stays in the church and they're perfectly happy with it and it's mentally healthy, psychologically healthy, um, then then that's okay with me.
1: That's that's a good healthy approach, I think. And I think it uh, you should be commended for for thinking that way and actually having that as your goal. Um I I really appreciated uh, you sharing your experiences, John. It was, it was good to kind of get to know you a little bit. Is is there any last words that you'd like to throw in there?
0: No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Um, Good enough. you know it's 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 been um fun especially doing this with you tom i appreciate you uh taking the time to to interview me and you know i think all these interviews that i've done um you know i walk away thinking man we just scratched the surface and um you know when i talk to you and talk to niall and and jim and george and, and then and uh it's Um, the Mormons are fascinating people and it's a fascinating world of how people make the faith work. And isn't that interesting enough in and of itself? I actually think that what we're doing among say most Protestants would not be considered anti at all. um, That our uh, supposed attacks on the church are actually very mild. Um, And I think probably in the long run and, and those of you who still go to church and Mike, who is still a believer, I think you guys should rest at ease, knowing that we probably help as many people as we um, as we lead out of the church, and probably those that leave the church because of things they hear here. It's more because we help them get to a place they need to be, other than we like expose them to the dark, dark and dirty. Because you just punch in Mormon into Google and hit return, and you're going to hit much worse things than we're bringing up here.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, I've, I've appreciated you um, kind of making yourself vulnerable for a change, John. I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed speaking with you. And and for all of you that uh, would like to email John, you can email him at mail at com or call at 801-906-6722. And another thing that John's never brought up that I would encourage all of you to do is to go up to the uh, PayPal button and consider donating a little bit of money for, for this project. He's... He's invested a lot of time and energy, and and it might be a good thing to uh, maybe throw a few bucks his way. So I I appreciate John for, for everything you've done. So thank you.
0: Thanks, Tom.